And before I start this week's podcast, as ever, just a quick note to thank the photographer who created the image on the podcast cover art. It's Sora Shimazaki at Pexels. Hello and welcome to a look at This Week in Financial Crime. I'm your host, Chris Kirkbride. It's been a reasonably busy week this week, uh, so let's crack on. We'll look at sanctions, of course. First of all, we have done since I started this podcast. Uh, we'll look at the Eurojust Corruption Report, which was published this week, and Silvio Berlusconi is back in the news. There's a blast from the past. The, Wolfsker, uh, the Wolfsburg Group has published its negative news screening Q&As, or FAQs. The Upper Tribunal has upheld a Regulatory Decisions Committee decision note from 2018, and we'll take a look at those aspects of the Queen's speech which are relevant to financial crime. So we start again with sanctions this week. After the initial activity over the weeks following the Russian invasion of Ukraine, sanctions news is finally starting to slow. This is good news for those of us non-Russian speakers attempting to pronounce Russian names, but principally an indication that sanctions have just about reached their natural end. The products and services coming from Russia and the persons with a Kremlin connection to be sanctioned must, I suppose, be numerically negligible by now. So with what's left, let's start with the UK. This week, the UK government announced a series of new sanctions against Russian and Belarusian goods, hoping to strike at the Russian war machine, as the press release puts it. There's more of that cliched nonsense in the rest of today's um, <laughs> podcast, actually. Uh, the package uh, of sanctions includes placing import restrictions and raising import tariffs by 35 percentage points on chemicals, platinum and palladium. Yes, I had to look up palladium as well, and Wikipedia tells me that its principal modern application is in the manufacture of catalytic converters uh, in these uh, in cars. Um, I should probably have paid more attention in chemistry, I guess, but also they're quite uh, prevalently used, or palladium is quite prevalently used in the manufacture of jewellery, in watchmaking, in aircraft spark plugs, and, somewhat unexpectedly, to make professional transverse concert or classical flutes. There you go. These measures amount to more than £250 million in UK exports, almost 10% of UK exports to Russia in 2021. In total, the UK has now announced import restrictions over £2.4 billion of imports from Russia, from Russia excluding energy-related announcements although the total value of sanctions imposed on Russia since the invasion totals around £4 billion. On top of these sanctions, the UK government continues to reach out to those closely allied to Putin. I think I referred to them as Putinistas in an earlier podcast. Putin is alleged to use close allies and associates to hide his genuine wealth, whilst appearing to the Russian people to work or to live and work in a, a modest St. Petersburg apartment uh, with two Soviet-era cars, at least that's according to the press release. Now, this press release, which announced these new individual sanctions, is basically just a long list of Russian names, and I don't intend to read them all, but here are a few highlights. The first is, I suppose, Alina Kabayeva, who is a uh, retired Olympic gymnast and rumoured, 
suppose I should say allegedly at this point, rumoured to be Putin's girlfriend. Uh, also on the list is Ludmila Ocher... Or, or, well, I'm, I'm not entirely sure I can pronounce that. Um, but she is the former Russian first lady and Putin's ex-wife. They divorced in 2014 and it is believed that she has had preferential business relationships with state-owned entities. Now, a few weeks ago, I kind of joked that so many Russian individuals have been sanctioned that the only ones left to be sanctioned must be Putin's second cousins twice removed. Well, many a true word is spoken in jest, because also on the list are Igor Putin, President Putin's first cousin, Roman Putin, the president's first cousin once removed, and Mikhail Shelomov, another of the president's first cousins once removed. In Shelomov's case, it's alleged that Shelomov's company, Accept LLC, has shared employees with Binom JSC, which is the firm registered as owning the so-called Putin's Palace on the Black Sea Coast, Grand Place. Just Google Putin's Palace and it comes up with the most impressive building. Right, I guess after this list was produced, then it must only be second cousins twice removed left to sanction. In early May, the UK government announced sanctions against Ervaz, or Evraz, sorry, PLC, a company incorporated in the UK, but which supplied strategically significant resources to Russia, e.g. 28% of all Russia's railway wheel sets and 97% of railway, railway tracks to Russia. As if this were not enough, uh, Roman uh, Abramovich, the soon-to-be former owner of Chelsea Football Club and uh, a designated purpose uh, person for the purposes of sanctions uh, against those close to the Putin regime since the 10th of March 2022, well, he also owns 29% of the shares in Evraz. This week, the UK government announced a licence to allow payments to or from the North American subsidiaries of any third party uh, or, or any third party under any contractual obligations and for the receipt of payments made by the North American subsidiaries for audit services. Further, uh, Evraz North America PLC may pay for the audit services and a relevant UK institution may process payments made in accordance with these matters. Been a few of these licenses have been issued. Of course, sanctions can't really function without licenses, which create exemptions to allow certain functions to continue. So there have been a few of these licenses issues and issued, and this is another one to allow certain functions to be carried out in relation to that organisation. The final story linked to Russia this week, but not sanctions related specifically, is news that the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office has reported that Russia is behind a series of cyber attacks since the start of the war. To be frank, I'm not sure this needed an official announcement. This, the news, I mean, if you read the news, any aspect of the news, doesn't have to be financial crime news, can just be any news channel, any news format. It's peppered almost daily with stories about the threat which exists from these so-called Russian cyber factories. Frankly, they even threatened to cause a cyber attack on the Eurovision Song Contest. So one would hope that the warnings of cyber events coming from Russia have been sufficiently persistent and serious in nature that businesses, especially those which are allied to key infrastructure, for example, electricity and network supplies, 
are already already prepared to withstand any attack. When we look at sanctions beyond the UK, there's a little bit happening this week. The, the G7 group of leading industrialised nations has committed this week to take further action, should it be necessary, to disrupt Putin and his regime. This includes a commitment to phase out reliance on Russian energy, which we've discussed before on the podcast is a persistent problem for some EU member states which are heavily reliant on Russian oil and gas. The G7 also committed to restrict the supply of services on which Russia depends. This has been done already across the international community with the UK, the EU and latterly the US, restricting um, access to professional PR management and accounting services, thus undermining the ability of Putin and his allies to conduct business. Uh, Allied to these is an agreement to stifle further the activities of Russian banks, together with the limitation on, uh, together with limitations, that is, on Russians uh, on the Russian propaganda machine. Uh, regular listeners to the podcast will recall that the UK and the EU have recently taken action to limit the operations of Russian propaganda by TV, radio, and across the internet. This week, the US joined that action. Um, so there is kind of more of a coordination around the whole propaganda side of the war. Uh, the full G7 statement is available on the White House website. As stated, the US has been busy this week placing sanctions on the ability of Russians to access professional services and to spread their propaganda via media outlets. Well, in addition to that, they've also been trinket-seizing with the announcement by the US Department of Justice that it has seized the superyacht Amadea, which was anchored in Fiji. Uh, the superyacht, which according to court documents uh, filed in the US District Court for the District of Columbia, belonged to Russian oligarch Suleiman Kerimov at the time he was sanctioned. He was also said to have made a funds transfer for the maintenance of the superyacht afterwards. Uh, this provided the evidence needed to forfeit the superyacht based on probable cause of violations of US law, including the International Emergency Economic Powers Act, money laundering and conspiracy. This is not the first, although we may be getting to it being the last of these superyachts to be seized. There can't be many more to go around, unless I'm mistaken. Let's move away from sanctions now and take a look at some activity this week from European Union institutions on corruption and the return to prominence of Silvio Berlusconi, the former Italian Prime Minister. These two stories aren't linked, by the way, just in case his lawyers are listening. The first story uh, is that um, Eurojust, the European Union Agency for Criminal Justice Cooperation, has published its Casework on Corruption 2016 to 2021 Insights Report. According to the report, over 500 corruption cases have been registered with Eurojust over the past six years, rising steadily, with slight dips in 2017 and 2019, from 78 in 2016 to 112 in 2021. The press, uh, the press release notes that the rise occurred despite the COVID-19 pandemic. Frankly, the COVID-19 pandemic provided such fertile ground for financial crime, especially fraud, that an increase in corruption should come as no surprise, really. 
The report interestingly identifies five EU member states in the top five countries registered with Eurodrust for these corruption cases. In order, from highest to lowest for the top five, we've got Greece at the top. Greece is the word. Germany, Romania in third place, Italy fourth, and Spain fifth. Sounds like the results for the Eurovision Song Contest, that doesn't it? Bottom of the pile is Sweden. They're pretty squeaky clean, the Swedes. It is to be noted that, and this is what the report says, this is a direct quote, Eurodrust is uniquely equipped to address the specific challenges of corruption cases through its judicial cooperation tools. Coordination through Eurojust has led to tangible results, including seizures, confiscations, arrests and convictions in complex cross-border corruption investigations and prosecutions worldwide. There you go. That's the end of the sales pitch. The next story relates to Silvio Berlusconi. Some of you may remember this story. It goes back a while. Uh, but this week, the European Union's General Court Second Chamber has upheld a decision of the European Central Bank to prevent former Italian Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi acting through a firm called Fininvest, in which he was the majority shareholder, I think he held just over 60%, uh, from retaining his uh, 30% stake in a, a bank called Banca Mediolanum. In 2015, uh, Mediolanum was absorbed into its subsidiary, Banca uh, Mediolanum, uh, which meant that Fininvest acquired shares in Banca Mediolanum. The European Central Bank considered this to be the acquisition of a qualifying holding and therefore needed to consider whether Berlusconi was a fit and proper person to acquire a bank shareholding. In concluding that he did not satisfy this because of a 2013 conviction for tax fraud, uh, um, uh, 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 sorry, he didn't he didn't satisfy this because of this 20, 2013 conviction for tax fraud uh, he, the, the, the decision was challenged by Berlusconi and Fininvest but ultimately they lost this week apparently Berlusconi and Fininvest planned to appeal the decision a couple of minor money laundering stories this week just a couple first the Wolfsburg group has published a series of frequently asked questions on negative news screening, or, or NNS as it's sometimes abbreviated. Uh, NNS is the process of searching information resources for negative material on current and prospective clients or customers as a strategy of financial crime risk assessment and management. By understanding negative news about clients, financial institutions should be better placed to meet the risks they pose. Searches should, of course, be conducted through viable media resources. But even then, I would suggest that critical evaluation of the material should be undertaken to avoid legal risks associated with drawing information from dubious sources. And finally, on money laundering, just a small story, the Financial Action Task Force, the FATF, has updated... It's consolidated assessment ratings. It did this on the 12th of May. They're available, as you might expect, on the FATF website. Now a story which, again, goes back a bit. Goes back a bit. But uh, came back this week when the upper tribunal had uh, a look at the decision and handed down its, its own view of the uh, Regulatory Decisions Committee uh, sanction made in 
2018. So this week, the Upper Tribunal, Tax and Chancery, affirmed a 2018 decision of the Regulatory Decisions Committee of the Financial Conduct Authority respecting losses in excess of £50 million which were caused to 2,000 customers when they were advised to place their pensions in unsuitable investments. The 2018 decision imposed financial penalties and prohibition orders on individuals and firms uh, over the investment advice. The five individuals sanctioned referred the decision to the tribunal which upheld the Regulatory Decisions Committee, uh, Regulatory Decision Committee's decision. The tribunal found that the individuals concerned failed to act with integrity having either acted dishonestly or, at the very least, recklessly. They were driven less by the desire to see their clients' investments perform than they were by personal financial gain, a classic conflict between their interest and their duty. Uh, That their behaviour was so compromised directly led to the significant penalties which were imposed in the case. The decision itself was 308 pages long, I think if you're going to read it, save it for a summer holiday on a sun lounger by a swimming pool. And finally this week, let's take a look at the Queen's speech. The Queen's speech, uh, for those who have no idea about it, sets out the government's legislative agenda for the session of Parliament in the United Kingdom. Queen's speech itself is the expensive bit of pageantry which is there for show with the speech itself being incredibly light on detail. Thank heavens, therefore, for the lobby pack, which provides a bit of depth, but still more detail remains to be seen over the coming weeks and months. Now, a lot of what I'm about to discuss has already been trailed in the media for weeks, even months, but that's the way of the world nowadays. And I've even covered it in these podcasts But a rehearsal, I suppose, can't really do any harm. By my reckoning, there are four bills, possibly with an honourable mention for a fifth, but certainly four bills which have some bearing on financial crime. They are the Online Safety Bill, the Digital Markets Competition and Consumer Bill, the Economic Crime and Corporate Transparency Bill, and the Financial Services and Markets Bill. Three of those bills are concerned to see that the United Kingdom consumer is protected from scams, specifically the Digital Markets Bill, the Financial Services and Markets Bill, and the Online Safety Bill. Interestingly, the Financial Services and Markets Bill commits not only to the protection of people from scams, but also to support the victims of scams, and that's a quote from the lobby pack. Quite what form this support will take is unclear. Does it mean more funding for victim support groups? I mean, it is really that unclear. But much of the rhetoric which has trailed in the media talks about forcing banks to reimburse the victim of scams, the victims of scams. This is, I suppose, support of a sort, of a kind. Uh, Nevertheless, without the detail, this is an interesting development. And if what is said in the press is to be believed, it's a development which is likely to see banks engaging more robust processes to seek to limit the liability under the reimbursement scheme. Of course, it's worth saying at this point that if we had better uh, standards of anti-fraud education at the consumer level in scam detection, then the problem might be less prevalent in any event. For example, just this morning in the early hours, I received a text from the post office 
Jamie had attempted to, del to deliver a parcel. Uh, had he really? Uh, unfortunately, I won't be getting in touch with Jamie nor the post office to request delivery of the parcel that I haven't asked for. The Online Safety Bill's commitment to preventing online fraud and scams will impose obligations on social media platforms and search engines to prevent fraudulent paid-for advertisements from being on their platform. And there are plenty of those that we see, see plenty of those advertisements around and about social media and across the internet, generally speaking. And every time I see them, I must admit, I raise an eyebrow. They look curiously too good to be true. And anything that, of course, is too good to be true almost certainly is too good to be true. The Economic Crime and Transparency and Corporate Transparency Bill continues the UK's response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine and, more broadly, will crack down on illicit finance and strengthen the UK's reputation as a place where legitimate businesses can grow. The purpose of the bill is to crack down on kleptocrats, criminals and terrorists who take advantage of the open economy that we have here in the UK. It commits to driving out dirty money. Well, about time. And it also commits to make life more difficult for Putin's cronies. To be frank, if we'd made more life more difficult a few years ago, we might not be in the problem we are now. But anyway... The bill will tackle economic crime, including fraud and money laundering, and protect national security by making life more difficult for terrorists to do business. This will be achieved by increasing the registrar of companies' powers to check, remove, or decline information submitted to the register, but also by providing companies' house with more effective investigation and enforcement powers. Further, identity ver verification will be introduced for those who manage, own and control companies. Powers will also be included to make it easier and faster to seize and recover crypto assets, which are especially prevalent in ransomware attacks. That's it for this week's podcast. Subscribe if you want to wherever you get your podcasts and you'll hear from me again. All being well next week. 